Well, this year, the annual theme of our preaching ministry is learning the way of Jesus. And right now we're coming to the end of a sermon series called Redeeming Regular Life. And we've said that this series, we have one more week next week, uh, but in this series, we've said that this is from the household codes uh, found in the New Testament letters or epistles in the Bible. And these letters were from the apostles of Jesus to the various Christian churches around uh, the Roman Empire, these, these new, uh, this new movement of the way of Jesus. And in their day, back in the first century AD, these household codes were common and they addressed the way that the basic relationships in the household, uh, in other words, regular life, ought to work. But the apostles of Jesus wrote from a uniquely Christian perspective uh, on these relationships showing how the gospel and the way of Jesus changes everything. So far, we've covered a wide range of topics, including redeeming marriage and sexuality and singleness and parenting and work. <laughs> and there's a lot to be said about all of those topics. If you missed any of those messages, you can always go back and watch or listen online if you'd like. But today we're moving on to a topic that many of us would desperately love to avoid. <laughs> Welcome to church. Uh, while others of us get way too excited to talk about this topic, and that is our politics. Now, I understand that choosing this topic, I have chosen to walk directly into a minefield, and there is danger in every direction. <laughs> Can you pray for me right now? Thank you. Well, for this very reason, as Christians, we must, we must think through these things from a Christian perspective. So what in the world does the gospel have to do with our politics? And what does the way of Jesus mean, I think especially for those people who might have very different political views or beliefs than we do? How do we treat them? Well, those are really big, important questions. Maybe more so than in the past. But it was really no different back in, all the way in the first century AD. The Christians back then had political views, and there were political issues, and there were political conversations happening. We know this to be true. They wrestled, these Christians, these brothers and sisters in Christ back in time, wrestled with how to interact with other people, with how to interact with their political leaders and systems of government. And the instruction the apostles of Jesus gave them then remains helpful and wise for us to this day. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, please take it and open it to 1 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 8. 1 Peter 3, verse 8. We're going to read through this. We're going to unpack it together. So let's start with verse 8. We'll put it on the screens for you as well. Finally, be... Oh, <laughs> excuse me. Let me try that again. Finally, all of you, be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer what is right for what is right, you are blessed. 
Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. This is God's word. Now, 1 Peter is a letter from the Apostle Peter, obviously, to the Christians throughout the Roman provinces, which make up the modern country of Turkey today. And Peter writes to remind his audience of what the gospel is, as he says here, the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. But then, similar to Paul's letters, Peter moves on from what the gospel is to what the gospel does, especially in chapter 2 and after, where he applies the gospel to various relationships and situations in life. So let's start back with verse 8 and unpack this uh, rich text together. Verse 8, finally, he says, or this is the end, this is the goal or the result. All of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Okay, let's pause here. Now, let's remember, the Apostle Peter here isn't writing to people who are considering the Christian faith. He's writing to Christians. And he calls us to have, I think, a radically better relationship with one another than what we see anywhere else in the world. He gives five attributes here in verse 8, which define what a Christ-like relationship looks like. First, he says, we are to be like-minded. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we all have the same preferences and opinions. That would be terribly boring. Unity in the church does not mean uniformity, as we often say. Just as we all have different gifts, but are part of one body, so we all have different preferences, opinions, musical taste, dress, so forth, all kinds of differences, but we still can be like-minded on the main points of our Christian faith. What we say here all the time is we try to keep the main things the main things and not be divided over minor doctrinal issues, preferences, opinions, musical styles, and those types of things. I truly believe if we can agree on who Jesus is, then everything else is secondary. Now, this doesn't mean that all these other things aren't important at all. It just means that they are far less important. Second, he says that we're to be sympathetic. This means noticing and being sensitive to how others are doing and how others are feeling. This is maybe intuitive, more intuitive for us today since our culture is so influenced by emotions. In fact, we've lifted up emotions to be the primary thing. How you feel is who you are. That is not true. That is too far. But we understand more about how to be sympathetic. This probably would have been radically countercultural for Peter in his day. Third, we are to love one another, with love, of course, being the defining characteristic of Christian relationships. 
It was Jesus who said, by this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Fourth, he says we are to be compassionate. Now, the Greek word is one of my favorite Greek words here. It literally means that your guts, or we would say our hearts, are moved with care and concern for someone else. Other Christians aren't an inconvenience to us or an obstacle for us. There are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who deserve our emotional investment and our material help. Fifth, and finally, he says we are to be humble. Later in his letter, Peter would write, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And so humility is a key character trait for the follower of Jesus. Remember, no one deserved more glory than Jesus, the Son of God, and yet he was willing to humbly come into the world that he made in order to seek and to save the lost. So humbly putting the needs of others ahead of our own, and sometimes I think their opinions or preferences, is very Christ-like. Now, I could pretty much stop here and we'd have more than enough to talk about, to chew on, as far as how these values of God's kingdom apply to our politics. Maybe just a little application question is, is this how we treat one another in the church when it comes to having different political views, opinions, or voting patterns? This was only the first verse, okay? We gotta pick up the pace a little bit here. So, okay, we'll move faster. Verse nine says, we're not to repay evil for evil or insult for insult, but rather we're to be a blessing to those who are insulting or even do harm to us because, Peter says, you were called. To this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Now, here, I believe there's a subtle shift, perhaps, from relationships inside the church to the relationships that Christians have with people outside of the church. Now, of course, it's sadly possible to find evil and insult in the church. We're not here, friends, because we're perfect. Far from it. Christians are Christians because we know that we need the grace of God. But still, it seems that Peter is now focusing maybe a little bit more on how we treat people who don't believe what we believe. So first, what is the blessing that Peter refers to here? You were called to inherit this blessing. He says, essentially, that Christians ought to play by different rules in life, responding, as an example, to evil or insult with a blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Now, what is Peter thinking about here? Well, we actually know what he was thinking about because he goes on to quote from Psalm 34, which outlines this blessing, a promise from God for our good. Let's look back at that in verse 10. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So, why, should we, why shouldn't we repay evil with evil or insult with insult? Because, after all, that's only fair. Why should we seek to bless those who are opposed to us or even are our enemies? For, Peter says, which means because, because, 
God is committed to those who seek to do what is right. His eyes are on them. His ears are attentive to their prayers. And we see this through the whole record of the scriptures. God is gracious, but he is for those who are trying to do what is good. However, this is a broken world, so people don't always get what they deserve. But in general, if you want your life to go well, if you, want to, if you love life and you want to see good days, then I think what Psalm 34 is saying is, you've you got to watch your mouth, as Justin referred to this morning, and maybe your keyboard. Things will usually go better for you. This is true. Even if it seems like good, good will come from speaking ill of someone or, or to someone here and now, even if they lied to you or lied about you or have insulted you, that hurts me, rest assured that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Even if it appears that someone has gotten away with their evil or their insult, they have not. It was Jesus who said clearly, but I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Instead, we're called to enjoy and give the blessing of having a right relationship with God. And this blessing starts to today by faith in Jesus and continues on forever in his kingdom. Therefore, this present and future blessing, this reality that we have in Christ means that we're free today to seek peace and pursue it. And notice that Peter doesn't give any qualifications for this. He doesn't say seek peace and pursue it, but only from people who like you or are like you or vote like you. But hang on, you might think, that seems pretty vulnerable, right? If this seems very risky. Won't this mean that we Christians will be taken advantage of or harmed in some way? Let's continue. Look at verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But... Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Okay, what? Now notice he doesn't say, if you should suffer for being a jerk, or being insensitive, or being insulting to others. Now some people think that they can treat others however they want to be treated, and if they ever get any pushback or anger or disagreement, they're being persecuted. That's foolish. If you're a jerk and people get upset with you, that is a natural consequence of your actions. That is not religious persecution. But Peter says, if you should suffer in the right way for the sake of righteousness or for what is right, then you are blessed. Now let's think about this here, okay? Even if you adopt the five attributes of Christ-like relationships, that sounds like a good blog post. And even if you repay evil with blessing, and even if you watch your mouth, refusing to speak ill of others or mislead others or deceive others, even if there's a temporary benefit, and even if you seek peace and pursue it, and that's the kind of person that you are, there still might be people who want to harm you or mistreat you. Again, this is a broken world. And sometimes people here 
are offended by our mere presence, even when we've done nothing wrong to them. Sometimes, even when we're eager to do what is good and right, we still suffer under the words or the deeds of others. But Peter says, when this happens, we are still blessed. And now this is a uniquely Christian perspective. You're really not gonna find this other places. Because our blessing, first and foremost, is not health and wealth here and now, it is first and foremost Jesus. And there's no one who can take us away from him. Now this is such a helpful perspective to have when we suffer the insults or the misunderstandings or the lies or the outright evil from other people. Even when I suffer, I must remember I am still blessed. Even when I suffer, I am still blessed. And nothing and no one can take my blessing from me. Because my life is built on him and nothing can shake me. But what then? We receive insult or harm and we are unshaken. How might we respond to this evil or insult? We'll look back at verse 14. Let's continue. Peter says, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Okay, what a mouthful. Well, here, Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 8, and I think it might be helpful for us to go back and look at that whole quote together. Let's look at that. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. The prophet Isaiah, about 700 years before the time of Peter, writes, do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Now, as long as there have been people, there have been rumors, conspiracies, and controversies which cause fear, mistrust, and division among people. As far back as we have a written record, we see this in action. These things weren't invented in 2020 with the COVID and everything like that. As far back as we can look, we find the same dark forces, divisive forces at work pushing us away from the neighbors that we are called to love. But rather than getting caught up in these common snares, verse 15 says, but in your hearts revere, that is sanctify or set apart Christ as Lord. Why? I think because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it says in the Proverbs. Now this doesn't mean that we must be afraid of God, but the fear of the Lord recognizes that God is rightly and infinitely more powerful and more wise and more glorious than anyone or anything else that we might be afraid of. The fear of the Lord is a healthy and reverent awe of the majesty, the glory, and the holiness of God. When, when this is our perspective on who God is, we, we spent a whole year last year focusing on this. When God is big to us, 
then we can have hope no matter what. No matter what happens, no matter what we hear, no matter what we fear. In peacetime and in war, in the good times and in the recessions, whether Christianity seems to be strong and vibrant in our culture or whether we become a minority in our culture, if this is who God is, then we have so many more reasons for hope. Now, this is why I believe we can respond even to those who speak maliciously against us, as Peter says, with gentleness and respect. Now, these two values, these two attributes are nowhere to be seen in the political landscape of our day. But these people cannot ultimately harm us. So what do we have to gain by responding to them according to worldly values? Nothing. In fact, when we do, we jeopardize our witness for Christ and the truth of the gospel. However, when we respond to others as Jesus did, refusing to repay evil with evil, even forgiving those who were actively crucifying him, then we testify to the glory of God and our faith and our hope and our blessing in him. This is the way of Jesus. And if you think that I'm inserting my beliefs into this, Peter is explicit with this in verse 17 and through the end of our passage. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For, because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Now, the gospel is, as we say often, the story of who God is, what he has done, and what he is doing today through his son, Jesus. And ultimately, in the gospel, we see that Jesus was the type of person that Peter is describing here. It was Jesus who was moved by his love, by his sympathy, by his compassion to humbly come down into the world that he had made from the riches and the glory of heaven. It was Jesus who was willing to bear insult and abuse and abandonment and even death on the cross, suffering once for sins, as Peter says, not to be blessed, but to be a blessing to a world that was lost without him. It was Jesus who was zealous in righteousness, eager to do good deeds, including healing and protecting and teaching and providing for us, even when we were his enemies. It was Jesus who was willing to sacrifice himself, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. And if this is what God in Christ did for us, then this changes everything about how we ought to treat other people as well. Now, someone here is possibly thinking, I thought that this was supposed to be about politics. And in this passage, I don't see a lot of politics. Like, where are the, where's the conversation about certain issues or topics or candidates or parties? Well, the answer is, this is about politics. The reason I chose this text, as opposed to maybe a passage earlier in 1 Peter that talks about honoring the emperor, is that this is more of a general instruction on how we are to treat other people. Basically, unconditionally, <laughs> no qualifications about their beliefs or how they treat us. 
And the reason that I chose this text is because I believe that the main problem of American evangelicals today is our failure to consistently apply the values of the kingdom of God, which we see in abundance here, and our allegiance to Jesus, our true king, to our political dealings with the people and kingdoms of this world. You see, the type of person that Peter describes here is a typical Christian. This isn't a super Christian or a Christian who only interacts with people who like them or think like them or vote like them. Peter is describing a typical Christian living in a pluralistic society with all kinds of different beliefs, opinions, and preferences, some of which are opposed to us, many of whom, many people in our culture today look on the beliefs of Christians as hate speech. Now, Peter is just describing this kind of person. This, is, this political world that we live in is full of differences of preference, opinion, and belief. It's a world full of fear and threats and conspiracies. It's a world full of real persecution, harm, and suffering for what is good, right, and true. And it's in this same world that we must connect the values of the kingdom of God, including the values we see here of unity, sympathy, love, compassion, humility, truth, gentleness, respect, and hope, We must connect these values to our politics, including, and I think most importantly, to how we think and speak about our political opponents. But it's not just our values. We must also see how our allegiance to Christ, our true king, comes first over every president, governor, judge, congressman, every candidate, party, and policy. One of the ways that Christians can love our neighbors on a social level is by our involvement in politics to think about issues, to learn from other people, to share our perspectives, to take action, to vote. And we must bring our faith with us when we do, just as everyone else does in a pluralistic society. The believers in Peter's day couldn't vote, but we can, and I'm thankful for that. But I know that this is also very difficult because some political issues and topics are clear while others are not. And even when the ethics of a particular issue are clear from a biblical perspective, how the law should be written or enforced in such a way that is good for all people is often not as clear. So because of this, I know that it's so tempting to abandon the way of Jesus here. To go with the cultural flow, to demonize our political opponents, to slander, dehumanize, and believe the worst about the other guy to use power and money simply to get our way. Now this might be the way of the world, but this is not our way. Now some might say, but our country is growing less Christian all the time. We're losing our cultural power and influence, so we must use any any means necessary to achieve our goals. I think it might be true that we're losing our cultural influence to a degree, but this is no excuse for thinking that the ends justify the means. We must do God's work, God's way, even if it's costly. But this was no different for the Apostle Peter. Remember, Peter wasn't writing in this utopian time where the society was open and welcoming and receptive to Christianity. Just the opposite, many Christians faced severe persecution in their day and died for their beliefs. 
Peter referred to Christians as exiles, not as to the powerful majority. In fact, Peter himself would be put to death under the emperor Nero, the same emperor he said Christians should honor. So Peter knew what he was writing here would be costly for many, and some might even lose their lives as a result. But that didn't stop him. Why? That didn't dissuade him from trying to get his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to speak and to act and to live in light of the hope held out in the gospel. It didn't stop him from trying to connect their faith to their politics. And no matter what happens in the kingdoms of this world, to set apart in their hearts to revere Christ as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the main thing. And only in him do we find our hope. This is why he wrote. This is why I'm preaching. This is what needs to motivate us as Christians in this world. So do we see our political interactions, including especially, I believe, with people who have different views or beliefs than we have, according to the values of the kingdom of God? Do we see our allegiance to Jesus as our true king, as the primary and main thing in our life? May we never forget who we are or whose we are in him. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we need your help. We live in a dangerous and divisive time where it seems that more and more people are scoffers to you and your way. Where more and more people look at your values and your priorities and, and your, who you are with hate. God, may we not fear them. May we not fear our time. May we not fear this way and path before us. But Father, I pray for your help that we would be united together in the bonds of our faith in your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would truly love one another and that out of our love for one another, we would be able to interact with people with gentleness and respect and share our opinions, and share our preferences, and share our views, not in a way to wound other people, but as a, as a way to build others up in love and in truth, that we would extend blessing to others who have extended evil or insult to us. God, I pray that you would give us, by the power of your spirit, the ability to follow your way in a difficult terrain. God, we love you, and we, and we know that, this, that these things are costly, but we trust you. We trust that you are wise, and you are good, and you are with us every step of the way. So we thank you, and we love you, and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.